You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. moments in life when we take up and we worship all kinds of things. We can worship people. We can worship poorly. We can worship wrongly. Jesus says to us, worship in spirit. Worship in truth. Come to me. I'll fill you. I'll satisfy your thirsts. Your hearts are restless in me. We will find rest. Good morning. I'm Pastor Jake. Uh, this morning, I need a willing volunteer, someone who's willing to do something for me with little to no recognition. Um, ah, first hand went up. Uh, you back there? All right. So, what I need you to do, please, uh, please, I should say, please, is run to the back and grab me a glass of water, please. I'm very parched and it's hot, and I'm not just being a jerk. This is going to be part of the sermon illustration, okay? Uh, so, thank you very much. Uh, it wasn't going to be part of the sermon illustration, but but now I'm uh, I'm parched and it, it's going to help us, okay, later on in the sermon. So we'll get back to that. Um, this morning. We're in Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. And before we read uh, these, these old verses that have been around for hundreds, well, thousands of years, um, I want to give you some context, okay? Uh, it's important that we know context. So, Ezekiel was a prophet. He was a priest who was in Israel uh, around the age of 25, 600 BC-ish, right? When, uh, when the Babylonian exile happened. It happened in about 598, the first go-around. And... Um, Ezekiel was one of the people that they, that they exiled with a bunch of the leaders in, in Jerusalem that they exiled into Babylon. So he was there. He witnessed uh, this, this horrific incident where his, where his country was invaded and attacked. And it was five years later as he's sitting in Babylon in this uh, place that's not his home that he, uh, that he starts seeing visions from God. And this is at the very beginning of the book of, Jeru- uh, the book of Ezekiel. So he begins seeing visions from God, and, and God anoints him to be a prophet. Now remember, prophecy, um, hey, thank you very much for that glass of water. <laughs> I appreciate it. Oh, it's good. Okay, prophecy, um, remember, is not so much about predicting future events as it is about uh, seeing into the current situation. When God appoints someone a prophet, he doesn't uh, give them a a bunch of foresight necessarily into what's going to happen, but he gives them insight into what's going on currently. He gives a prophet the eyes and the mind and the heart of God himself so that they might be a mouthpiece and help us see things the way that God does, all right, today. All right, so that's that's a prophet, and that's what Ezekiel was really um, called to be. But he's given a little bit of both, and his message, God's message through Ezekiel, um, was a message of A, judgment, and be hope. All right, and you'll see that theme in a lot of Old Testament uh, uh, prophets, a lot of the books with the prophets. There's, there's, there's two messages, first judgment, 
and then hope. And so God has, has pronounced judgment upon Israel and all of the lands, all the nations for their wickedness and their disobedience and Israel's breaking of the covenant, etc. Um, and he says there will be death and destruction. That's part one. Part two, God says, but there's hope. There will come restoration. After the death and destruction, there will come a time of rebuilding and of new life. And Ezekiel throughout the book takes us in, on this journey in kind of his own unique way. And there's, there's this event that really marks the beginning of each of those processes. And it's, it's the presence of the glory of the Lord. In chapter 11, Ezekiel sees the, the presence of God leaving the temple and leaving Jerusalem. And it's this, it's this horrible thing to a priest, right, his, whose life is, is devoted towards the temple of God, and he sees the presence of God leaving the temple and leaving Jerusalem, and that marks the beginning of the death and destruction upon the land. But then in chapter 43, almost all the way towards the end of the book, there's a new temple, there's a new Jerusalem, and Ezekiel has this new vision where God's glory is returning to the temple, and it's like the sound of mighty rushing water. And that event marks the beginning of this hope and rebuilding and of new life. And one last thing you need to know before we read this is that Ezekiel is brought to a place. In this last vision in chapter 47 that we're going to read, he's brought to a place. It's a place uh, much like Israel, very well may be Israel, but it's in that area of the world. And it's a desert. It's dry. It's desolate. It's lifeless. Just to the east of this desert is the Dead Sea. You have the Dead Sea, just like you and me know. It's the lowest uh, elevation on all of the earth. There is no life. Nothing can thrive. Nothing can live there. That's the geography, and this is where God takes Ezekiel. Sorry if we're having struggles with the mic. Should I use a different mic? Yeah? There's no life. <laughs> What'd you say, Grant? Okay, grabbing a handheld. Check, check. You good? Okay. Sorry, there's no life in that mic. That was good. Okay. Chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. It's the second to last chapter of Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, In my vision, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar on the south side. The man brought me outside the wall through the north gateway and led me around to the eastern entrance. There I could see the water flowing out through the south side of the east gateway. And so pause for a moment. What Ezekiel is seeing in this vision, in this new temple where the glory of the Lord is present, he sees a stream, a river flowing out of this temple in the midst of a desert. Measuring as he went, he took me along the stream for 1,750 feet and then led me across. So he walks alongside the stream, and then he walks across the stream, walks through it. The water was up to my ankles, so it's ankle deep. He measured off another 1,750 feet, and he led me across the stream again. This time, the water was up to my knees. After another 1,750 feet, it was up to my waist. Then he measured another 1,750 feet, and the River was too deep to walk across. It was deep enough to swim in, but too deep to walk through. So the water is rising as he walks further. 
He asked me, have you been watching, son of man? Have you been paying attention? Then he led me back along the riverbank. When I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. Then he said to me, this river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. So we're in the most dead place in all the world, but life will flourish. Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea, all the way from Engedi to Enaglaim. The shores will be covered with, with nets drying in the sun. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea, just as they fill the Mediterranean. But the marshes and the swamps, that which remains knee-deep or ankle-deep, will not be purified. They will still be salty. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food, and the leaves for healing. Now this image in Scripture of life and of death uh, recurs again and again. It's repeated all throughout Scripture. And you know what I'm talking about, um, if, if you've come across this enough, is that you start to pick up on the reality that life and death, this image, all throughout Scripture, is more than just the physical sense of life and death. There's something more to it. If we just look at, at death, let's start with death, okay? Um, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, God told them what would happen if they ate the forbidden fruit. Surely they would die. But then we, we read on, and what happened, no, is they were kicked out of the garden, and they died like hundreds of years later. And you pick up on this reality that, that they didn't die physically, not, not immediately, as a result of their eating the forbidden fruit. But in God's eyes, they did die. There was something that... that he, he said was equivalent to death. There was, a, there was a change in the state of their existence when they sinned for the first time. A change in the state of their existence that was so great that God called it death, even though they continued to exist or live. Now, when's the last time that you, uh, you heard something described as death? There are some smells I can remember saying that. That smells like death. <laughs> it's not good. You ever woken up in the morning and someone told you you looked like death? Not a good thing, you know. <laughs> I could go on. We, there's all these different ways uh, in our language today that we, we, we might describe things as death. And that's literally like the mountaintop uh, descriptor of horrible and awful and undesirable. How could you possibly get worse than death? And yet death is the language that God uses to describe a state of existence apart from him. Now life, in the same light, life, God describes our existence as life only when we are with him. Life is more than simply existing. 
Okay, how would you describe life? Someone asked you, what is life? It's more than simply existing. It's more than having a heartbeat. It's more than uh, just breathing or going about the motions of your day. Life is more than uh, being born and having a childhood and adolescent years and an adulthood and then your elderly years and then dying. Life is more than just going to school, making friends, getting a job, being successful or not. It's more than just retiring. It's more than just doing these things um, that could all be summed up in one word, existence. That's what it means to exist, guys. It's not what it means to live. You can do all of those things, and according to God, according to the scriptures, be completely dead. This never really hit me until recently. I was, uh, I was uh, listening to some Jerry Seinfeld stand-up, and he was doing this skit where he talks about life cereal. All right, I used to love life cereal growing up. And he says, um, he says, how audacious would you have to be to name a cereal called life? You know, he imagines the, the marketers standing there uh, saying, what should we call this stuff? It's pretty good. And one of them says, how about squares? And the other says, no, how about Odie's? And then another guy says, no, this is much bigger than that. This is life, I tell you. And he's like, how could you possibly think that life is the best way to describe your cereal? And so that's, so that's Jerry Seinfeld's uh, joke, but I get, I get what he's saying, is that life is a pretty crazy uh, high mark, right? That's trying to say something, and yet life is the language that God uses to describe our existence only when we're with him. Now, from this perspective, and only from this perspective, we can begin to see um, that often the life we're living and the life we're pursuing is, is actually not life at all, right? It's existence. And it's death. Now, our culture is a culture that uh, tries to tell us constantly, 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 all the time, to convince us um, that there is some other source of life besides God. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we buy into that at times. So we, we feel as if um, we can have life elsewhere. And so much of that is in, is in pleasure, and it's in comfort. Maybe it's in uh, popularity, making friends, having the uh, most likes on your social media post, or Instagram post. Maybe it's, I don't know, being successful in your job. I could go on and on and on, owning things, possessions, I don't know. But, but we are told constantly this narrative that there is life in, in things other than God, and so we pursue it. And that's culture's way of saying that these things are other gods, right? Because deep down, we know that the only source of life is God, and so that if that thing is going to give me life, it has to be God. And that's what's happening. And so even within the church, even us Christians, we're, we're pulled away and what we're really doing when we get wrapped up in these things is we're denying the one true source of life. And the result of that ultimately is um, dead, dry, empty religion. Now, this word religion, I think, gets a, a bad rap. Um, 
it's a, I don't know if it's kind of a buzzword recently or whatever, just this, in the last 10 years or so, I just, people hate the word religion. They hate the thought of religion. And religion, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's an expression of our beliefs. And what I found is that people don't hate religion, even if they think they do. What they hate is dead religion. And in our lives, we've just been around so much dead, empty religion. So much tradition that's just void of any, any real meaning that we have a hard time uh, buying into religion, right? John Wesley um, had this quote, and he said what he feared the most, listen to this, he said, I don't fear the day will come when Methodists will cease to exist. Right? I don't, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, okay? He says, I don't fear the day when the Methodists cease to exist, but I fear the day when they become dead, having the form of religion but denying its power. And I think we should all fear that more than anything. I, I think we should fear that we continue to exist without the, without the power of life. I think we should, we should fear more than anything that, um, that our prayer lives just continue on in the form of, of a prayer life, but just without any real meaning or any real connection with God, that our ministries in the church uh, just continue to exist without any real life. And, and at times, I've just come across situations where we care more about whether or not something exists than whether or not it has life. And your, your Christian life... and. It, your prayer life, you're, you're reading your scripture, you're coming to church on Sundays and worshiping here corporately, worshiping uh, not corporately, individual, whatever, whatever it is that you do to express your faith, your Christian faith, if anything, does it have life? I mean, real life. Does it connect you to, to God and God alone? Does it fill you with his spirit? I love this, this image um, of the water rising. First it's ankle deep, then he walks further, and then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it's above his head. And I want you to ask yourselves this morning, where are you in relation to the water, in relation to this river? I think a lot of us Christians have gotten really comfortable, really satisfied, including myself, with just the ankle-deep water. And maybe, I mean, even when he first realizes it, it's just like it's trickling out of the, t- the temple. Literally, the, the literal translation of that word is it's trickling out of the temple. And then it's ankle-deep. And we're just, we're, we're too satisfied with just a little bit of God's spirit, just a little bit of movement. And, and if, you're, if, if you're way far from the river, maybe your first step is just, just getting an ankle deep. Out of, maybe, and, and that's a good step. But for those of us who have been there and we stay there, man, that ankle deep water will never sustain life. It won't. It is not a river. And we wonder why our faith gets dried up and our, our practices, our spiritual practices that we do just, just feel dead and dry and empty at times. It's because they are. It's because God is calling us deeper and deeper and deeper with him. And so why don't we go? What's keeping us from going? Personally, um, what keeps me from, from going deeper into the water at times is just, I mean, it's, it'd be just like jumping into a river where I couldn't touch. 
We're going to get swept off our feet. We're going to lose control. We're not going to be able to plan what's going to happen. I, I mean, I could go on, but there are just, there are so many reasons, so many things that we hold on to. We want to keep our feet on dry ground, you know. And it's scary to go deeper, but man, it's worth it. And it's life. Now, one place where I believe that this can happen, where we can seek out God's presence and go deeper into the river is worship. And not just corporate worship, all kinds of worship, but it's worship. I, a few, uh, a couple months ago, Pastor Bob and I went to a revival conference-ish uh, in the Methodist family, if you will. And we went there uh, just to see what would happen. I didn't even have any expectations. I don't know. And, and uh, what was great about this place is that there was no agenda, right? You go to all these other conferences, there's always some kind of agenda. The only, the only agenda here was to worship. It was, it was a ton of people in one room with no other reason for being there than just to seek the presence of God and be near to him. It was just incredible. And Methodists, I'll tell you, um, at times, we are pretty lame worshipers. I've said this before, you know, but we just, uh, Methodists are known. It's like a joke, all right? So this isn't a surprise. It's a, it's a, a joke that's frequently talked about where Methodists just don't know how to worship. Uh, we just kind of stand still and don't do, and, and, but this place, just full of Methodists, about a thousand of us probably, um, was just people who, on most days of the week, you would have found them probably standing still and not singing too loudly, maybe not raising their hands or whatever, but everybody in that room had the spirit of willingness, the spirit of worship, just a desire to be near to God and to seek his life-giving presence. And I'm telling you, what happened was amazing. It wasn't manufactured. It was just authentic. God showed up. And there were people who were just, we were just waiting and listening and willing to go where God called us to go, to do what he called us to do. And there's throughout worship, there people were moving about the room and praying over each other. There were people speaking in tongues at times. There were, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that was just made me crazy uncomfortable. And I'm telling you, though, what it gave me was life. There was just a sense that we were, everyone there was just empowered to live differently. We were given renewed sense of passion, a renewed sense of purpose. We came back just thirsting for more. That's the thing about this. is like when we enter into that stream, when we worship, when we're brought back to life, even in just the smallest way, we just want more. You can't, you can't be satisfied with just the ankle-deep stuff. And I found myself, since I've, I've come back from that, it's been two months now, um, that I can't, I can't live off of that experience, all right? Um, it's kind of like the manna that fell from heaven in the desert or whatever. God gave it to them every day, just what they needed, so that they would continue to rely on him every single day. They couldn't store it up and save it for later. It's the same with worship. It's the same with his river. It's got to be every single day that we engage with the Spirit of God. And that's proving to be difficult after I've gotten back, but I'm, t- I'm still thirsty. I'm still thirsty, and I want, I want us to have more of it. And this is what's at stake every time that we gather. When we gather on Sundays, this is what's at stake every day of your life. I think that God is, is placing before us life and death. It's like in Deuteronomy uh, 30, 
where he renews his covenant with Israel. And he says, today I place before you life and death. Choose life. And when we worship, we have this choice uh, to remain still and to remain disengaged, to remain dead. Or we can choose to engage the Holy Spirit. We have this choice to allow someone else to come get us a glass of water and just hope that happens, or to go get it ourselves. And I think that too often we just wait for others to come get us the water, for others to do this work for us, and we rely on other people's words and other people's thoughts and other, other means of getting this water, other than just getting in it ourselves. And God's calling you in. This is... He wants to feed you directly to you. That's just a direct pipeline right to you with his word and his grace and his power and his life. Almost every time I've ever had a significant uh, life-giving experience in worship, it's required something of me. Almost every time I've ever... Uh, stepped into that river and just really been filled with life by God. It's required something of me. There's been something that I've had to give up. Sometimes it's uh, confession. It's an area of my life that just has remained untouched by God, just this little little hidden area. And God says, no, it's, it's about time that you give that up to me. And, and at those times where I don't give it up to him, you know what? It remains dead. I remain dead. I remain dry. But when I do, he is so faithful and just pouring out his Holy Spirit on me. So at times it's been confession. At times it's been um, fear. I've talked about this before of even just like raising my hands in worship. The first time I ever did that was just like this, this pouring out of God's Holy Spirit, right? I just, I didn't care anymore what people thought of me. That's a big thing to let go of. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe I, and it goes beyond just here on Sunday. But the point is, the point is, which areas of your lives remain untouched by the life-giving flow of the Holy Spirit? And how is it that God's calling you to respond? What is it that he's calling you, asking you to give up? It feels like death, and that's a death of, of, of some kind. But in it, there's life. So, we're going to transition now to a time of communion. And uh, I want to throw this picture on the screen for communion. This is actually from the, the last chapter of Romans, so I'm a week late here. But I, it works so well for our purposes. I just, look at this picture for a moment. It's probably bigger up here. See on the bottom part of it, all these like little cookie cutter people? This is us, apart from God. This black and white, colorless, two-dimensional, cookie-cutter, lifeless people. That's what it means to exist. Exist in a state of death, to live apart from God, you know. And, and uh, what Jesus is inviting us into, what communion is, is this opportunity that we have to just to just get out of our shells, just break out of our comfort zones and just reach out 
to Jesus who's reaching out to us. And you see how the color is just starting to be restored into that figure. I mean, that's, that's what can happen here for you today if you just engage with the Holy Spirit in whichever way God is calling you to. So the communion servers would come forward and the band would come up. I'd like to pray over um, these elements. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that your Holy Spirit just falls upon us here today. That this bread and this juice might be your body and your blood. It's you who's reaching out to us. It's you who's the life-giving flow of water. It's you alone who can quench our thirst. And yet when we taste of you, our thirst can never be quenched. We just want more and we want more. We thank you, God, for giving yourself up for us. And I just pray today that you bless us in all ways in worship here and as we go. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.